Let's open our Bibles to um, chapter 9 and chapter 10 tonight. And um, it is jumping from one issue to the next. And um, we'll do some harmonizing with the Gospels between Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Some of this we've covered pretty thoroughly with um, uh, Sunday messages. Let's begin with uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 9, the transfiguration. I'll stop at verse 2 and comment on that. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then it says six days later. And I believe in verse 1 he's referring to this, what was going to happen six days later. He took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. All right, when we go to Israel and we're traveling from Megiddo to Nazareth, they will point out and say, this, this mountain here is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And um, um, what I want to point out here is it simply doesn't tell us. It just says it's a high mountain. And it could have been anywhere in the Galilee. My personal favorite would be our bell. It is the highest mountain around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it's it's simply a very, very special place. So point number one um, is that we don't know where this spot is. It's just a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, in Luke's account, and I won't have you turn there right now, it gives us more detail. It tells us that Jesus was transfigured and before them, but Luke tells us that they were sound asleep. All of them were heavy with, with sleep. So when they woke up, um, they saw the Lord transfigured before them, and here's Elijah, and here's Moses. So what Mark tells us here in three is his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Um, There's a lot that's being implied here. Uh, Something like this has never really happened before with Moses and Elijah appearing on a scene. Of course, Moses died on Mount Nebo, and the Lord buried him. And Jude... It even stirs our curiosity even more because it says that the devil contended uh, with Michael over the, the body of, uh, of Moses. And um, um, we don't know what that's all about. We know that Elijah never saw a death. He was taken into heaven. Um, and Elijah appeared with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Now, remember... Mark doesn't tell us that they're asleep, but Luke does. So in verse 5, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then I like this, because Mark is the only gospel that tells us, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Now when you put Luke together with Mark, it makes more sense. They woke up, and here's Jesus glorified, Here's Moses and Elijah, and they're rubbing their eyes. It says they were in a heavy sleep, and uh, they were 
greatly afraid on top of all this. Um, And a cloud came and overshadowed them. Oh, by the way, Peter is the one uh, that, this is um, Peter dictating this gospel to Mark. So Peter is the one that tells us that he didn't know what to say. This is Peter's personal account to Mark. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to say. Of course, it's never stopped Peter before. <laughs> uh, for they were greatly afraid. And now a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. I'm sure um, the appearance of Moses and Elijah... We're going to see it's going to provoke a lot of questions as they go down the mountain. And, but as uh, they were enamored with Elijah and Moses, um, this is one of the place. These are good Trinity scriptures right here. Because you have the Father speaking from heaven, and you have the Son, this is my beloved Son, hear him. Well, it's the Father who's making that statement. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should not tell the things that they had seen till the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, I made a big point of this on Sunday. And I mentioned all the times before um, um, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that whenever an event like this happened, the Lord said, don't tell anyone who I am or what I'm about to do until Palm Sunday when it was foretold that this was the day that he would reveal himself as a Messiah and the people were allowed to worship him. So they kept this word to themselves, but they were questioning what the rising from the dead uh, meant. Um, Verse 11, and they ask him, saying, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then he answered and told them, Elijah does come first and restores all things, and how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be uh, treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah also has come, and they did to him whatever they wished as it was written of him. Now, we need Matthew's input on this to get the full picture, so I'm going to have you turn to uh, Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read the same account. Let's pick it up in 17. Okay, they're walking down the hill. Jesus, verse 9, tells them um, the vision to tell it to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming. Now, when he's saying that, um, it's future tense. He is coming and restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer all at his hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Okay, Elijah is coming, but he already has come. Oh, the lights are on and for the disciples, you mean Elijah was John the Baptist? Let's go to the book 
of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And we're looking at uh, five and six. I want to just stop again as we are trying to make the point. We did this on Sunday when we talked about Zechariah 9, verse 9, and the donkey that the Lord would come riding on. And that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. But then in verse 10, we have the same man ruling over the entire world, peace from sea to sea. Clearly a millennial scripture. And my point was this. You can have a double prophecy. You can have thousands of years between them. It's not explaining it to us. But now having hindsight looking back, we have that understanding. All right? It's the same here in Malachi chapter 4. And a couple of things that stuck out to me as I was studying. Uh, The last verse of the book of Isaiah chapter 66. The very last verse. We'll get to that when we talk about hell. Well, these, these are not only the last um, verses for the book of Malachi. These are the last words of the Old Testament. And God's not going to be speaking again for the next 400 years. We call them the 400 silent years. Between Malachi and Matthew, God did not speak, but all of a sudden, John the Baptist once again is on the scene. So let's read, pick it up in verse 5. This is how the Old Testament ends, and it is a double prophecy. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. All right, this is clearly right at the time of the tribulation, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then he says, and he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now, we have this uh, being fulfilled. If we go from here, let's go to um, Revelation chapter 11. Remember, he said Elijah is coming. Future tense, where is that future tense? Go to Revelation 11. And somehow I think this meeting that the Lord had with Elijah and Moses has something to do I like to call it a staff meeting because I really don't know what else to call it, (laughs) with what was going to happen during the tribulation period. Um, There's progressive revelation as you go through the Bible. Remember, Daniel wanted to know about these things, and the Lord said, sorry, Daniel, they're shut up and sealed until the end. Then knowledge will increase, men will travel to and fro, none of the wicked will understand, but the wise will understand. Why will they understand? They'll have the hindsight of history. The disciples understood because John the Baptist was already dead. And uh, Jesus was referring, this is what they did to him. They're going to do that to me too. Oh, you're talking about John the Baptist. We thought you were talking about Elijah. No, when John the Baptist came, and um, it actually quotes um, in the Gospels, that he'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the father. That was part of John the Baptist's ministry. Well, the other part of Malachi says he's going to come right before the great tribulation period. All right, Uh, chapter 11, Revelation, verse three. And I will give power to my two witnesses 
and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. Now that's a prophecy from Zechariah 4. And it gets into quite a bit of detail about these two olive uh, uh, trees with um, oil receptacles um, going out from them. And the idea here with oil is always the Holy Spirit. So basically, these two olive trees are going to have the ability to do supernatural miracles whenever and they want it. And um, um, I believe that uh, absolutely 100% for sure that one of them is Elijah. Why? Because this is before the great and terrible day of the Lord. When does their prophecy, how long does their ministry last for? Well, it tells us for um, 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. All right. This Sunday we're going to be spending some time on the one verse in Daniel 9 that we didn't touch on. We touched on all the verses except the very last one. That's verse 27. Because that one is yet future and it deals with the Antichrist. And it tells us that the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel. But in the middle of of that um, seven year period of time, Remember, they owe Israel, there's still one week left, one seven-year period that God owes Israel. Sunday's message was all about 69 weeks are already fulfilled, but one isn't. So the clock has sort of stopped. Now, rapture of the church takes place. The world is confused. Nobody can figure out what in the world just happened. Chaos off the charts. And um, Dave Hunt said this years ago, just... Try to imagine what it's like the day after the rapture. And all of a sudden, um, the beginning of Moses and Elijah's ministry begins. Because it's, if it's going to be for three and a half years, and then that's how long God allows them to minister, that's exactly halfway into. That is a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And we'll be camping on that um, because of some very interesting things. Well, I'll let it out of the bag. I don't, very seldom, will I not take something from 9 and 10 and do the Bible study um, from these verses. But every so often, we get a major birth pain. Does everybody understand what I mean when I say birth pain? Something happens in the world that should get our attention. Well, something's happening in the world right now that uh, we're going to take this Sunday and address it. And that's all I'm going to tell you. And if you want to know what it's about, you're going to have to come to church. That's all I have to say. But it's major, and it's a major birth pain, and it's unfolding uh, as, as we speak. And um, so a little teaser um, there. And if any, verse 5, if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from the mouth and devours their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now they have power to shut heaven, so no rainfall falls in the days of their prophecy. Well, that's that's Elisha. That's what Elijah did to Ahab. And it didn't rain for exactly three and one-half years, past tense. Now he's doing the same thing in the future. Lord, what's this 
thing with Moses and Elijah appearing, what's this all about? What does it mean? Why do the prophets say Elijah must come first? Oh, Elijah has come first. Well, I'm confused. What does that mean? Well, they're going to kill him. Matter of fact, he's already dead. Oh, you're not talking about Elijah. You're talking about John the Baptist. Yeah, the spirit of Elijah, it says, was on John the Baptist. And now, that the same thing that happened, and we find that uh, the other one has the, the ability to strike the earth with plagues as often as they want and to turn water into blood. Sounds like Moses to me. And another big clue is the Mount of Transfiguration. It's Moses and Elijah. It's not Enoch and Elijah. Having said that, I won't argue with you for those that take to the... Uh, um, Scripture that says it's pointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's carved in stone in this case. I think the Lord could use Moses. And I believe that's why he, he appeared. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's get back because we have a lot of mileage to try to get through tonight. We have the, the transfiguration verses 1 through 13. We know that he's talking about two things, and what I'd like you to remember is that the last verse in the Old Testament is a double prophecy, and it has to do with John the Baptist, and it has to do with Elijah. All right, change of thought. On Sunday, I mentioned one of the things that Mark, without exception, I think I counted two chapters um, up to where we are so far, where there's no mention of demon possession. Well, here we go again. This is from verses 14 to 29. And when he had came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. There's a word immediately again, 36 times in Mark's gospel. Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him and greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one from the multitudes answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. Um, We learn this only in Mark's gospel that what kind of spirit it is, it's mute. And wherever he seizes him, he throws him down, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. I spoke to your disciples that they should cast him out, but they couldn't do it. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I bear with you? And um, the Lord is, um, he's grieved by their, their lack of authority that he gave to them. Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, There's one immediately again. The spirit convulsed him. He fell on the ground, wallowing, foaming at the mouth. So he asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, we don't know how old the boy is, but um, this has been going on his whole life. Um, The father's going to be in tears in a moment here. He says in verse 22, and often he was throwing him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. What has the devil come to do, we're told? To steal, to kill, and destroy. And he was tormenting this poor little boy from the time he was very, very young. 
But if you can do anything, I, I can just hear the compassion of the Father to the Lord right here. Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, well, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, there it is again, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Can anybody say amen to that? I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he created the heavens and the earth. Judy and I were watching God of Wonders before we came here. It's an awe-inspiring wonder of how great and powerful God is. And yet there's times I feel just like this guy. Of course I believe. And, um, um, And yet there's times we pray, Lord, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying unto them, and only this is, um, he calls him by name here, you death and dumb spirit. I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Now that's interesting. The command not to enter him again. And the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him and he became as one dead so that Benny said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand lifted him up, arose, and when they had come into the house, now it's one-on-one, what a drama this was. And what, um, um, probably the most descriptive uh, that I can think of, uh, describing uh, a demon being cast out of a person, as far as the details go. I mean, it gets... Very, very graphic with the foaming of the mouth, convulsing him, throwing him in the fire, into the water. It's been going on since he was a child. But the disciples came to him privately and said, why can't we cast him out? Now remember, when the Lord sent them out, and they came back from their first missionary journey on their own, they were pumped up. They were excited. And they said, Lord, even the demons... We had authority over them. And Lord said, don't make such a big deal out of it. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But he said, you want to rejoice about something? Rejoice about this. Your guys' names are in the book of life. So they were getting hung up on the fact that power, <laughs> I have power. And, uh, but they didn't have power over this one. And they were confused. And they said, what's up? And when they came into this house, they asked him privately, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus said to him, well, this kind, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting, unless I'm doing the talking, of course. And in this case, Jesus was doing the talking. Well, in my notes here, I have question mark, question mark. It makes me wonder, this kind. And so now... We can only speculate, but I think it gets back to, remember Daniel chapter 10, and different powers and principalities. There's different strengths for different demons, and um, some have greater authority than others. Now just quickly, remember in your mind's eye, Daniel 10, Daniel's praying, he's used to getting his prayers answered, nothing's happening. He prays for three full weeks, 
And all of a sudden, um, uh, the angel shows up that was dispatched. But he says, well, I was sent three weeks ago, but I was held up by the um, king of Persia, which was a demonic um, angel that was withholding the information, probably Daniel chapter 9, that the devil certainly didn't want you to be able to understand last week's Bible study in Daniel chapter 9. Like I said, it's one of the most incredible Bible studies in the entire Bible. Why? Because it tells you the very day that Jesus would be revealed to the day. And he doesn't want you to have that information because it's really a faith builder. Good place for an amen. And so uh, the idea here, this kind, stubborn, wasn't going wasn't to go. He was going to put up a fight. Well, Michael is an archangel. And he trumps the prince of Persia, that demonic angel. So Michael shows up. He says, okay, to the other angel, go give the message to Daniel. And um, so on and so forth. And uh, it wasn't until this was all in Daniel chapter 10. All right. So the point in this, again, for some reason, almost every chapter has uh, the reality of demonic activity. Brings us to 30, Jesus now again talking about what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they didn't understand, and they were afraid to ask him. Now again, this is Peter, this is Peter's gospel. So they heard him, but it wasn't going along with what they believed the Messiah was going to do when the Messiah came. All right, let me just take a minute and again talk about the two comings from the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it clearly describe that Jesus is going to come two times. It just gives us different Bible references that he's either going to come um, establishing his kingdom, like we read in Zechariah 9, verse 10, from sea to sea, and that um, the the throne of David would be established. It was promised to David that his throne would be an everlasting one when the son of David comes. So that's, that's clearly there and talked about, but at the same time, you have to reconcile um, Isaiah chapter 53. He'll be despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. His soul will be made an offering for sin. And so they're reading scriptures like this, and they're, but nowhere, it just gives you, but it doesn't explain it to you, that the first time that he's going to come, It's going to be as a suffering servant, lowly on a little colt. Um, Then there's the rapture of the church. Uh, John, uh, Jab in chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you will be also. So he's going to come for us. So when he does come for us, we go to meet him in the air because he's prepared a place for us. Now at the second coming, we come back with him. So that's not clearly explained either unless you read uh, the context 
of, um, uh, well, this is just a, a good example here of the disciples, they were afraid, Peter said, I'm afraid to ask him what he's talking about, dying? Who's dying? And uh, to show why they were confused, here's the attitude of the disciples in verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and this would have been um, headquarters for the Lord. It was uh, where in the house they asked him, the Lord goes, hey, when we were back there on the road and I was telling you about what's going to happen to me, uh, what were you guys arguing about on the road anyway? But they kept silent, for on the road they were disputing among themselves who would be the greatest. Where's their head at? They're only thinking the kingdom is here. They're only thinking, well, it's only a matter of time. We're going to Jerusalem. And um, they were arguing, jockeying for position. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, um, you guys just don't get it. I'm only coming this time to die on the cross, but then there's going to be the period of time of 2,000 years, the church age, and then I'm going to come back at the rapture. Then at the rapture, the two witnesses are going to appear. He doesn't say any of that stuff because they would not have understood it, but he's just laying out for them that for the here and now, if anybody wants to be first, he shall be last and shall be servant of all. Then he took a little child, set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Now whoever receives one of these little ones in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, well, we saw someone, this is a change of thought here, well, we saw someone who does not follow us, and he was casting out demons in your name, but we forbade him because he does not follow us. Uh, this is a good place to stop and say, yes, the church is getting weaker. Yes, there is a departure from sound doctrine, but that doesn't mean that we're the only church in town. Good place for an amen. Uh, anybody that is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, Paul made reference to this. And... Um, the people that were preaching, evidently they had a bad attitude. Paul said, said I, I don't care. As, as if, if people are coming to Christ, I'm going to rejoice in that, even though they don't do it exactly like we do. So and this is, they had the wrong attitude, and the Lord's basically saying, look, if they're, if they're not against us, they're for us. And Jesus said, don't forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For everyone, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the idea here is they're jockeying for position. And he's going, guys, not now. Now is the time where you're faithful in little things. And he says, if you'll just be faithful in little things now, then I will cause you to be over many things later. Well, where's the later? Well, this is a promise to the church in Revelation. What does he say? He says that we will rule and reign with him upon the earth. Oh, you guys want administration places in the kingdom? Yeah. Got it all figured out. 
And it's going to be who's going to be faithful and show servanthood now because I'm watching. I'm watching so much that even if you do the smallest thing, give somebody some water in the name of Jesus. I keep a track of all that stuff. He says, but don't jockey for position now because there's nothing to jockey for positions for. Oh, Lord, can, uh, we'll follow you. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Sure can, whatever it takes. They didn't have a clue what he was talking about. He was talking about his death. Well, here's what Jesus said next. He says, yeah, you're right. Each one of you are going to be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with. Every one of them died martyrs. They didn't die in places of prominence. No. They, they died at the, just for being believers, all except for John. They tried to boil him, but he, he wouldn't cook. <laughs> and the Lord had plans for him. Well, what was that? Well, 96 AD, he was going to be given the book of Revelation. Let's go on to change of thought. I warned you we're going to be switching gears here tonight. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and they were thrown into the sea. Well, we've gone from giving a cup of water in Jesus' name and treating being like children to now taking and spoiling a child's faith somehow, some way. He says there's a reward for that too. Um, and that is, you're gonna, uh, now he goes in and talks about uh, hell. If your hand makes you sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands that go into hell and to the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I'm going to go here in a second because I want you actually to turn the pages to this. This is the last verse of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 verses, 66 chapters. This is right here quoted where the worm does not die that's a prophecy from the last verse in Isaiah 66. I'll be taking you there in just a minute. And if your foot makes you sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. And the fire shall never be quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, Isaiah 66, 24. And if your eye makes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better that you enter the kingdom of God with one eye than, uh, than having two eyes to be cast into hell's fire. Now it gets descriptive where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Isaiah 66, 24. For everyone will be seasons, uh, seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Turn to the first one here. Um, first of all, let me say that Jesus, for those who uh, hold to the universalism view that there is no hell, Jesus talked about it more than anyone else. I was reading McGee today, and he said something that I couldn't believe. He said, Jesus is the only one that talked about hell. He said, Paul never talked about hell. I said, what? How could Paul never talk about hell? I started to think about it. Come on, mind, wake up, think, pick out a verse. I walk out of my office. Mary, where does Paul talk about hell? 
I walk into Joshua's office. Joshua, where does Paul talk about hell? Well, he talks about hell. I said, where? (laughs) Mary, just give me a verse. Where? I can't come up with one. And they're scrambling and Googling and blue letter Bibling. There's references to his wrath. And uh, every once in a while, McGee will throw me a curveball and I go, no, I don't sneeze. I just put a question mark up. (laughs) Here's my point. If you get nothing out of this, Jesus Christ talked more about hell than anybody. And maybe Paul doesn't even use the word directly. Now there's a a brilliant test for you to find out where he uses the word hell and speaks specifically about Gehenna. The Lord, um, let's turn to um, Isaiah now at this time and just open to it just like that. Isaiah 66, this is how... This is the last verse of the book of Isaiah. And it says in verse 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, end of the book of Isaiah. Now that's ending the most incredible uh, this is probably the major prophetic book about Jesus. And uh, this is the last verse of it. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. We'll read the first three verses of Daniel chapter 12. Verse 1, at, the, at that time Michael shall stand up, that great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Michael is the warrior. Gabriel is the messenger. And there shall be a time of trouble. This is in reference to the great tribulation period that Daniel was intrigued about. But we're just getting an overview of a couple verses, not detail. Such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Now Jesus pretty much says the same thing in Matthew 24. When the great tribulations comes, it'll be a time of trouble that the earth has never witnessed before. And we have a little hint of it here in Daniel 12. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and here we have it, some to everlasting life, but some to shame. Now we have a word that's being used here of what some people are going to experience throughout all eternity. And there's no, you can't get away from it. It'll be a part of your spirit and your soul and your conscience and um, everlasting contempt. You have to live with yourself. Oh, I'm gonna party with Janis Joplin and Hendrix and Jimmy Morrison. No, you're not. That's what I used to say when before I was a believer and didn't have a clue about anything. Hell, you know, maybe yes, maybe no. When, when it's over, it's over. Or we'll party when we get there. Well, it is the exact opposite of that. They call it outer darkness. Place of torment. Where you get to live with yourself for all eternity. With your thoughts. 
And not your last thought, the last thing that you're gonna think if you're not saved, will be standing before the great white throne and see uh, the creator of the universe asking the question, is his name in the book or not? And every, everyone who is not found written in the, in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Hell is gonna be emptied. And um, it's gonna be emptied at the great white throne judgment. Um, so if this is sobering, it's meant to be. If it, if it scares you, it should. <laughs> um, but those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The wisest thing you can do is, is witness for Jesus Christ and turn those who will listen to you. And don't spend a lot of time on people who consistently won't listen to you. The Lord says, okay, if they didn't listen to us in this town, Lord, well, shake off the dust off your feet and go somewhere else where they might. And um, just keep on planting. Some will listen, some won't. And um, who was telling me this? Uh, I think it was Paul Daniel. Um, don't get sidetracked, Dwight. You've got a lot to go through tonight. Okay, good, good advice. Let's go. Uh, the Lord talked about uh, hell more than anything. This is Daniel chapter 12. This is the last chapter of Daniel. And what's he talking about? The great tribulation. But he doesn't give us very much information. Just that it's going to happen. Then you have Jesus giving us a little bit more information. And then you have the whole book of Revelation, which is a very detailed account of that seven-year period of time, that Moses and Elijah will be the first half. What will they be doing? Telling people about Jesus and um, the gospel. Let's go back to Mark chapter 10. Now, change of thought completely. I told you we'd be switching gears big time tonight. Now the Lord is going to address marriage and divorce in verses 1 through 12. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Then he arose from there and he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And the people gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. And then the Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, his disciples again asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's camp on this a bit. 
And um, this whole idea of the certificate of divorce, we need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. So we're going to get an Old Testament perspective on this, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 7 and get a New Testament perspective. The last book of the five books of Moses, the last one is Deuteronomy. Going to chapter 24, it gives us a little bit more insight. Verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, it doesn't really describe what that is, and he writes her a certificate of a divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. Verse 2. When she has departed from the house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, this would be the first one who divorced her, must not take her back to his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land where the Lord your God giving you as an inheritance. As time went on, this is all the Lord laid out for divorce in the Old Testament. As time came on, you have them adding to the scriptures and actually getting real specific about where do you draw the line? What is it offensive? Well, she burnt the toast this morning and I was really looking forward to that toast and it offends me and she's out of here. And they were taking it for the smallest excuse. And what the Lord is saying is because your hearts are hardened. And so that was the main idea. But the reason they were testing Jesus, they want to know how far can we go with this? What's he going to say about this issue? Because they were making it very, very easy to write the certificate of divorce as time went on. Well, that's all the Old Testament has to say about it. This Testament, Paul elaborates quite a bit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. The first nine verses are dealing with um, single men and women. And then in verse 10, now to the married, I command. Yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to to depart from her husband. Then, because um, we have the but, But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Uh, The Bible clearly says the Lord hates a divorce. And here, um, he says, now to the married, I commend, yet not I, but the Lord. So he's saying, this is what the Lord would say. You're not to depart, you stay together. But... It happens, and one does depart without really having grounds for departure. He says, the one who departs, let her remain unmarried or eventually be reconciled to her husband. And then he said, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Now notice the change here. This is what the Lord says. Now Paul says, I'm going to give you my advice. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother 
has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, this is real life. This happens. We have a husband who's saved and a wife who isn't. We have a wife who is saved or a husband who isn't. And now Paul's advice is, um, and she's willing to say, well, I'm going to hang, even though you became a Jesus freak, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang in there with you anyway. Don't d- divorce her because she's not saved. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 13, and a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. What's he saying? Just because you come to the Lord and your wife doesn't, that doesn't mean you should divorce if that person is willing to stay. Now, that isn't always the case. Sometimes a person uh, will come to the Lord and he comes home and says to his wife or his husband, whichever it is, gave my life to Jesus Christ today. And um, she goes, well, I know what that means. Or he goes, yeah, I know what that means. We're not going to be doing this anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. I am out of here. And um, she's not willing to live with him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Let's just camp on this here for a minute, talking about the children, that they're holy in that this is where we teach um, the age of accountability. Uh, in Israel, when a man turns 13 years old, they have what they call a bar mitzvah. Um, it's a great big party. It's wonderful to see when you go down by the Wailing Wall and they're having a bar mitzvah for the 13-year-old son. Why? Because they determine at that age, they're old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, they should be able to study with their fathers, and they should be able to pray with the men and actually have an age. Um, I believe, this is my personal belief, every child under the age of accountability is in heaven. And you say, well, I can say that categorically for the believer in a Christian family, but what about other children? I believe a child is innocent until he reaches that age of accountability. And I don't believe the Lord would hold them, that child accountable um, if he doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Isn't that what he said to Jonah? When Jonah was disappointed, he was bummed out. And he said, you said you were going to judge these people. I knew you. You're gracious and you're long-suffering. And I knew if they repented, you'd forgive them. And Jonah goes out and he starts sulking because God didn't wipe him out and so on and forth. He says, Jonah, Jonah, who do you think I am? Don't you know that there's, what's the number, 120,000 or something like that, that don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand? What's he talking about? A little child. And so my personal view, it may not be your personal view, that every child under the age of accountability um, goes to heaven. Any other evidence for that, Dwight? I'm glad you asked me, because I'll give you another one. And what's not my note, it just came to my head. <laughs> David lost his son when he had the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And he prayed and he fasted because the son was dying. 
And the son died. And David got up, washed his face, ate some food. His friends came and said, what's up with this? When the child was, was, was alive, you're fasting and praying, or still alive, you're fasting and praying, but now he's dead and you're up cleaning yourself up? He says, yeah, there's nothing I can do about it. I will go to him, but he cannot return to me. That's a very strong scripture about children going to heaven, right there. I will go to him. I don't know where the Lord draws the line. I believe it's at conception. When does the Lord put the soul in the embryo, in the child? I don't know. I believe it's at conception. I believe that's where it is. That's by personal view. And boy, could I get sidetracked here. So we better get back to wherever we were. <laughs> okay, verse 14. Um, we covered that one in verse 15. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. So the unbeliever says, listen, I want out of here. I don't want your lifestyle. You're living a different lifestyle? The Lord is now telling the person who's saved, don't, just let it go. And um, don't let it put a heavy thing on you, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Now, if there's any confusion about the sanctification versus up above, where one is sanctified by the other, this should clarify it here. Chuck would say, if you read a verse that confuses you, then read one that makes it more clear. Well, verse 16 makes it more clear. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? See, the husband's not saved, married with an unbeliever. So the verses, the sanctification here is not a sanctification unto salvation, but a sanctification under better to have a mom and a dad with the kids than to have just a mom or a dad. How do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So now we have, again, a switch of gears big time, and we go to, but as God has distributed to each one, as as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while he circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Now, we touched on this first when we had the Bible study on the rich young ruler. And I purposely went here and to remember the demon-possessed man who wanted to follow Jesus, and the Lord says, no, but I want you to go back home. And the verses that, um, that I wanted to bring out, we actually came and we read this verse right here, and also verse 24. And this is for those who are afraid to say, Lord, I give you everything. I give you my life and I don't care. I, it's yours, whatever you want to do with it. And um, that should be hopefully what's, what's in every one of our hearts. But he says here, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Now if that's not clear, he's going to make it real clear by the time we get to verse 24. 
Were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, that's good. For he who called is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's uh, freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You have been bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Verse 24, very important verse. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called. In other words, what were you doing for your job when you got saved? You should never be afraid to say, Lord, I give you everything. Now this verse comes into play. And unless the Lord specifically says, like he said to the rich young ruler, okay, you come and follow me. And he went away sad and he couldn't do it. Uh, To the demon-possessed man who wanted to follow Jesus, he says, no, that's not what I got for you. I want you to stay at home, be an influence, tell the great things what the Lord has done. Do you guys realize that wherever you work, whatever you do, that might be the only Christian witness somebody might ever see? What did Daniel say? If you're wise, you'll look at every person as a possible person that you can win to Jesus Christ and Daniel says, if you get a lot of them, (laughs) you're gonna shine like the stars forever. Can you imagine somebody being grateful forever? Say, you know, it's because you witnessed to me as a Sunday school teacher or whatever, and um, that person is eternally grateful that God used you as an instrument um, to bring that person to the Lord. So I hope this, I think the analogy that I use that people are afraid of, (laughs) If I give my life to Jesus, he's gonna call me to Africa for sure. Or say, Lord, I'll give my life to you, but. (laughs) No, we should be able to say, Lord, whatever, and not be afraid to. Because in most cases, whatever what you were doing before, um, uh, you work at Walmart, but now you work at Walmart and you're born again. And unless the Lord specifically says to you, I'm calling you out of that, then you stay there and you'll be a witness at Walmart. Good place for an amen. How much time I got? I don't. I'm out of time. Is that right? It is right. I'm not anywhere near being done. And I don't wanna, and I don't wanna rush it. Let's stand and we'll pray. Ah, <laughs> oh, Lord, we covered, I think, what you wanted us to for tonight. In closing, I wanna remember Tom and Kathy, crash, and pray again for Seth and his girlfriend, Lord. And for your word that it finds a place in our heart tonight. And we thank you uh, just for the diversity of topics that we covered tonight from the uh, Mount of Transfiguration to deliverance of a poor child that was possessed and um, to the issues of of, um, age of accountability and marriage and divorce. Lord, it's so true that if we'll study the whole Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, there is not an issue that your word does not deal with. And we're grateful, Lord, that you address the real issues of our life, and over time, we'll cover it all. So we thank you for your word tonight. I pray for Sunday morning, Lord, as we do a special message as we're watching birth pains unfold in the world today. I pray that you'd bless that time. In Jesus' name, amen.